Hello, everyone. Thank you. The Hudson Institute and the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense would like to welcome you today to this session on the coronavirus. Uh, I am instructed to advise you that we will take questions during the session that will be used at the end, and you can send them in uh, by tweet to at Hudson Institute or by email to events at hudson.org. And that instruction will appear on the board during this uh, session. We meet today at the intersection of rapidly advancing medical and geopolitical challenges. Medical concerns grow in the deepening shadow of illness, quarantine, and reportedly hundreds of deaths in China. The stifled cry of a Wuhan doctor, dead of the virus at age 34, symbolizes the second challenge. His early warning about a spreading SARS-like virus was harshly sentenced by Chinese authorities. Back then, China downplayed the severity of the threat. Weeks later, China declared an emergency. In the West, many continue to question the Chinese statistics. In China, doubts about authorities advance in the wake of Hong Kong demonstrations and Uyghur detentions. Beneath the surface, beneath these statistics that mark these intertwined challenges, lurk human tragedies of a kind evoked by Camus and Solzhenitsyn, by Ibsen and Kessler. Today's panel features some of the finest experts from both Hudson and the Bipartisan Commission. My name is Scooter Libby, and I'm lucky enough to play a small part in both of these institutions. Both rely on wide-ranging research to advance public debate and sound policies. Both institutions also benefit from terrific leadership. Hudson under Chairman Sarah Stern and President Weinstein, and the Commission under its bipartisan co-chairs, Senator Joe Lieberman, and former Pennsylvania Governor and First Secretary of Homeland Security, Tom Ridge. Today, it is my high privilege and distinct honor, as that occasional phrase goes, to introduce our moderator, Senator Lieberman. Senator Lieberman is no stranger to homeland defense, national security, or bipartisanship. Over his 24 years in the Senate, he was a powerful voice on the Senate Armed Services Committee, and he held important chairs, including on homeland security and governmental affairs. He also formed strong bipartisan partnerships with other Senate legends, including the late Senator John McCain and Senator Lindsey Graham. In 2000, Senator Lieberman was universally applauded as the Democratic nominee for vice president. Many still cite his vice presidential debate as a model of what such events should be. That debate was the first time that I got to study the senator close up, although he might say I was looking through the wrong end of the telescope. <laughs> through either end, I saw then, and I still see, a patriotic, charismatic, compassionate, and insightful man 
with strong friendships and many accomplishments across diverse fields. Currently, the senator is the uh, is a partner in the well-regarded law firm of Kazowitz Benson in New York, helping to address our nation's critical shortage in talented lawyers. <laughs> Most relevant for today, Chairman Lieberman's bipartisan commission has produced multiple high-quality reports focused on natural and not-so-natural biological threats. Over the past five years, the Commission has advanced over 30 recommendations, over 20 of which have been either enacted or adopted as policies. Some of these recommendations, as you will hear, bear directly on today's topic. Finally and notably, the Commission has remained bipartisan, or rather tripartisan, in the highest sense of those terms. That is, not merely calculated political compromise, but members of different parties with different backgrounds and viewpoints working together to get better results for our country. Please join me in welcoming Senator Lieberman. Uh, thanks uh, very much, Scooter, for that really generous introduction and uh, uh, predictably literate as uh, you are. It's been a pleasure to get to know you after that little skirmish in 2000 ended and we've been on the same side uh, since. Uh, also, thanks uh, through you uh, to the Hudson Institute for having from the beginning uh, been uh, both a host and a sponsor for our uh, bipartisan commission on biodefense. So let me give you just a real brief history about uh, the commission. It's the inspiration of a man named Bob Cadillac, who has worked in the area of biodefense for, biodefense for some period of time in various administrations, actually is back now in this administration working on that and other uh, matters of public health. B Bob felt uh, that um, uh, our, our biodefenses were, were not up to the challenge. And uh, by biodefenses, I mean defenses against both uh, man-made biological threats, terrorism, bioterrorism, and uh, uh, naturally occur, occurring biological threats uh, such as uh, infect infectious disease uh, epidemics or, or pandemics such as the one uh, we are unfortunately experiencing now. So Bob's idea for this was that we create a bipartisan commission uh, to work on um, a uh, better preparing or urging the government to be uh, better prepared for each of these uh, potential biological attacks on the uh, security uh, of the American people. And it resulted in a six-person commission, uh, which I'm honored to be co-chairing with a former first Secretary of Homeland Security, Tom Ridge, um, former Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle, former Secretary in the Cabinet, now Member of Congress, Donna Shalala, who left when she was elected to Congress to be replaced by Lisa Monaco, who, as far as I know, has not declared for Congress yet, uh, yet was a Homeland Security Advisor in the uh, Obama administration, um, uh, Jim Greenwood, a former uh, Member of Congress, and uh, Ken Weinstein, who uh, was a, homeland, uh, is a lawyer, has been an Assistant U.S. Attorney, 
and um, was a Homeland Security Advisor in uh, the Bush uh, 43 administration. So it, it's, a, it's a wonderful group, staff, excellent staff, headed by Dr. Asha George, and uh, I'm proud of what uh, we've been able to do. We have, uh, since we started in 2014, uh, learned a lot, and uh, I, I will, and uh, some of the big things that I've learned are directly related to the current uh, coronavirus uh, uh, pandemic. Um, one is the extent, well, the first is that though I was focused on bioterrorist acts and their, uh, the, the danger they represented to the American people, and they still do, that, that the potentially much more significant threats were naturally occurring, infectious disease pandemics. Part of that we see from history, the, the influenza uh, epidemic, pandemic of 1918 killed uh, over 50 million people uh, worldwide. And more recently, we've dealt with uh, MERS and SARS and Ebola and Zika. Uh, so so this is these are really serious, and the, the potential for them to occur is greater because of the greater extent to which we're traveling, we're involved in uh, commerce every day with one another than certainly was the case in 1918 when the uh, uh, flu epidemic occurred. The second, and uh, after I'm done, the first speaker will deal with this, is a, wor a word that I use, let alone uh, something substantive I learned, which is zoonotic, that uh, the, most of the infectious diseases we're, we're dealing with are zoonotic in the sense that they are uh, transmitted to humans by uh, various animal species. And uh, how we deal with that is a really important uh, important question. We, we put out a report that Scooter was good enough to uh, uh, mention in 2015. It had over 30 uh, recommendations in it. A key to, to the whole approach, I think, was that there is no substitute in this area, as in so many others, for prevention, for preventive action. To me, one of the um, top conclusions thematically that I drew and have continued to draw from our work is that once an infectious disease epidemic starts, it's, it's already in one sense too late um, that the effort is focused on containing it. Um, but if you start to scamper around as, an, as we're doing right now to find uh, treatments or vaccines, it's, it's just about impossible to do that uh, quickly. So then you do what we're doing now, which is to try to contain uh, the spread um, of the disease. Um, of the uh, 33 recommendations that we made, I think uh, some of the most important dealt with organization of the U.S. government effort in this regard. One was to localize leadership. We recommended the vice president's office, but it's really important that somebody within the White House uh, oversee all this uh, and that there be a strategy, which there was not. We recommended a national biodefense strategy. The, when the report came out, the Obama administration, members of Congress supported it, uh, but it wasn't until 2018 under President Trump that the uh, national biodefense strategy was actually issued. It's a good document. We're concerned in our commission that implementation of it has slowed a bit more than it should be, but all of this is now brought right to the uh, center of our concerns and the public's uh, concern uh, as well with the uh, novel coronavirus that we're dealing with now. The numbers 
change every day, but they're really quite uh, stunning and uh, uh, worrying. Uh, uh, there have been a total of 40,171 people infected by the coronavirus, 908 deaths. Yesterday, just 97 deaths and 3,062 uh, new cases. Almost all of these are in China. And um, uh, I think we, we have to approach this as something that's happened in China now, but that could happen uh, in the U.S. or anywhere else in the country, in the world. And I hope and, and, and now pleased to see that uh, there is an effort not only through the World Health Organization, but through the United States government to help our fellow citizens in China who are now uh, at the, at the uh, now the targets, the immediate, uh, immediately under uh, risk uh, from this coronavirus uh, infectious disease to help them in every way we can to contain it and to treat it and to, uh, if it's possible now, to, uh, to stop it. Um, the administration has appointed a committee, the Trump administration, headed by uh, Secretary Azar. It's an important thing to do. It's, uh, in one sense, under the aegis are involving the National Security Council. That's important because it makes the point that uh, this uh, spread of this disease is, in fact, a national security threat. It's, it's, yes, it's a public health problem, but it is uh, a national security threat. Um, if we had our druthers based on our report, that uh, committee that Secretary Azar heads would have uh, already been appointed years ago and would be permanent and ready to spring into action uh, with a crisis such as that presented now by novel uh, coronavirus. Secondly, we're very grateful to the CDC for having come up with a, a, a diagnostics test. That is, how do you um, uh, find out if people sh showing symptoms, which in this case are quite common, uh, of actually having coronavirus, and the uh, diagnostic kits have now been circulated within the last week by uh, the Centers for Disease Control to states and localities, other governmental entities around the country that are being shared around the world. NIH itself is working to produce a vaccine for a novel uh, coronavirus, um, but that's not going to happen overnight, and we will, uh, we will talk about how that can happen. And again, going to the question of prevention and readiness, uh, this um, crisis challenges us to uh, invest in uh, the development or the uh, search for a broad-spectrum uh, vaccine or uh, antiviral, one that works against an entire cl class of pathogens like uh, the coronavirus. Um, there's also, in a, in a much less um, sort of complicated way, a, a real shortage of supplies to deal with a crisis like this. In addition to medical countermeasures, uh, we've got to um, remember the need for essential medical supplies, basic stuff. There's no point, for example, in developing vaccines that need to be injected if we don't have enough needles. There's no point in telling hospitals and other healthcare de uh, deliverers to provide supportive care if we don't have supplies like saline. There's no point in urging everyone to take great care in protecting themselves if we don't have enough masks and gloves to go around. Uh, in fact, one expert we had appear before our commission a while back 
said that the world has only about a two-day surge capacity for these basic medical supplies. That is, items ordered and already manufactured but have not reached their destination. Just two days in the world, including particularly our friends in China, are dealing uh, with this uh, need um, in an urgent basis right now. Final word, the, the uh, government's response, our government's response will only be as strong uh, as available funds allow it to be. Um, for a long time, unfortunately, Congress uh, uh, declined to provide funding for a, an entity it created, the Public Health uh, Emergency Fund. Recently, it established a separate fund at the CDC and put in more than $100 million to combat infectious disease outbreaks. But today, as of today, uh, just a little more than a month since our country began responding to the coronavirus, that rapid response fund is totally depleted. And the CDC is having to take money away from other programs to keep funding uh, novel coronavirus uh, efforts. So it's clear that emergency supplemental funding is going to be necessary. Um, I hope the administration will ask Congress for it quickly, and needless to say, I hope and trust that Congress um, will respond. But again, uh, there's no substitute for uh, investments in uh, preparedness for the next response. And when it comes to some of the real big investment items like developing broad-spectrum uh, antiviral uh, vaccines or treatments, it's really a worldwide concern and ought to be, uh, our funds ought to be pooled with funds from other countries around the world uh, to see if we can combine our, our intelligence, our technology, and our shared need as citizens of the same planet to be uh, better ready for the next infectious disease epidemic um, when it breaks out. We're very fortunate today, uh, and uh, the bi uh, Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense is really proud to be co-sponsoring this event with uh, the Hudson Institute to have brought together a wonderful group of uh, experts. Um, we're here to learn, and um, we're here uh, to, hoping that we will learn uh, some things that will help our commission, and perhaps those of you who are here in the room and those uh, watching on the live streaming to take uh, action uh, to respond to the current threat and to prepare us to better respond to future threats. It's, it's my great honor to uh, begin by introducing uh, Dr. Billy uh, Karish, who's a member of our um, commission, uh, one of the ex-officio members. We found a very clever way to keep the commission small, but increase <laughs> the uh, expertise available to us. Uh, Billy and Scooter are both ex-officio members. Uh, Dr. Karish is uh, the executive vice president for, uh, uh, at the EcoHealth Alliance and brings a um, background as a veterinarian and um, uh, will talk to us particularly about uh, the zoonotic uh, effect on this crisis. Dr. Karish, it's all yours. You can speak from there or here, whatever you like. I, I'm fine here. Good. Okay. <laughs> Forgive me from passing you Thank you, sir. In the day. Yeah. So, welcome, everyone. 
It doesn't seem like it's been five years until you mentioned that. My, how time flies, and we've had some great outbreaks since then, haven't we? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to say that, uh, just so people don't think this experience aged you, that when I met you five years ago, you did not have any hair. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. This, so it's not the membership good, on this commission. This is very time. true. <clears throat> so... Once again, good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Mr. Libby. Uh, I'm going to start out with a little video, and I think we're going to go in somewhat of a chronological order. So I want to take us back to why this outbreak's occurring and why similar outbreaks do occur. And we, um, before you queue up that video, the Hudson Institute asked me to specifically tell you there's a warning. Um, you may see some things in this video that are unpleasant or uncomfortable. So if that is the case, you might want to close your eyes or shield your eyes. I'll, I'll narrate it for you. Um, and also, <laughs> it's adult content only. Right. Um, and then also that I shot this video myself, so I do have the rights to it. And it was not taken in China. It was actually taken in Indonesia. So what I want to show you this is because this is not a specifically a China issue. So much of um, the world uh, gets their food on a daily basis from the systems that I'm going to show you. In fact, tens and tens and tens of millions of people are getting in contact with live animals, and particularly wildlife, in markets like the one I'm going to show you. Now, we've edited this down to just 30 seconds. Um, I think the first time I showed it was while you were eating lunch for the panel <laughs> meeting. That didn't go over so well. So we've kind of trimmed this down for a cleaner section. You're not going to see the early part where there's live dogs being killed and chopped up for food. Uh, you're going to miss out on the chickens there, um, some of the pigs. But we'll, uh, we're still going to give you a little flavor about what goes on in this market. So if you cue the video clip. But those are actually bats for sale. At this one little market, they told me they're selling about 6,000 a week. And this market, of course, there's dozens of these markets in the neighboring area in one little tiny place on one little island. Um, then I think we zip by the rodents that were for sale. So those were rats for sale. And then this is uh, fresh meat. I think this is pork. And somebody's chopping that up. Uh, looks like they're still chopping up the bats. So you can see this mixing of blood and material, respiratory pathogens. They're all coming to the market. People are walking around in the flip-flops. No one's wearing gloves. The consumers, the customers are handling it with their bare hands. The vendors are handling it with their bare hands. They touch their face. They bring in more live animals. That spreads more virus, bacterial pathogens. And the scale of this, as I said, there's thousands of these markets just in Asia alone. And we see it in Latin America and Africa, too. So we have thousands of markets on a daily basis with thousands of people. Now we're talking about millions of people exposed on a daily basis. So and we seem to be surprised that there's emergence of a virus that goes from animals to people. So I always say that the only thing surprising about this is that we are surprised by it. 
everybody says it's nothing we can do about it. And I disagree with that. For one thing is, if you look in those markets, and I was just in some in Cambodia recently, um, the only people in the markets are the, the customers and the vendors are old people like me, and then five and six and seven-year-old children whose grandparents are taking care of them because they're not in school. But that whole big demographic in the middle, average age in Asia is probably 20, 25 years old, they're not that interested in eating bats and this kind of food. They'd much rather go to Pizza Hut. I mean, if you asked your 18 or 20-year-old child, would you like to drink snake blood or would you like a hamburger from McDonald's? I think most of them will say a burger from McDonald's. So I think there's an opportunity for the social behavior change, especially with social media that's rapidly growing in these parts of the world, that we can shift away from that. The other thing is modernizing the food safety programs, and that's really about refrigeration, cold storage, food safety. I think, I mean, it's not a joke, but I think this will eventually die away. It doesn't kill us while we're doing it. Um, there's a natural progression. So we can do some things to move that along. This coronavirus is nothing really new. So I don't know, we don't seem to be learning the lessons. We saw this with SARS. It came out of uh, wildlife. We know that was linked to bats. We know Ebola is linked back to bats. We know some of this new corona, the MERS coronavirus, it really looks like its origin was in bats and then got into camels. Avian influenza, uh, we learned years ago that if we, we better monitor or actually close down a lot of live bird markets, we'd reduce the risk of avian influenza in the United States. I think in New York there was 20 or 30 live bird markets, just live animal markets, just a few years ago. I think now it's down to three or four. So once again, I think our culture is changing. There's an opportunity to reduce that risk. That's a lot like I think about with uh, traffic fatalities. Some people say, oh, you shouldn't change culture. A lot of people like to drink and drive. We shouldn't really interfere with their culture of doing that. I don't agree with that. I think there's some things we can do to change, to help push along and help some cultural change to get people less um, to use these live animal markets and the consumption of wildlife down. Um, our work with the Wuhan Institute, we've been using uh, NIH, NIAID, grant funding. We've been working with the folks in Wuhan for years. We found at least 50 new coronaviruses that match up very closely related to this current one in people. It's circulating in China. When we actually tested humans, we tested people, about 1%, a half a percent of 1% have antibodies. So this is going on. People have been get, getting these viruses for quite some time. And I think in some ways we're just lucky that it hasn't turned into an outbreak sooner. So I just really want to finish with that because we do, as the Senator said, we tend to um, think about the response, you know, what are we going to do? How are we going to treat these people? And, I, and I'm a firm believer we can reduce the risk of these outbreaks. We'll never eliminate all of them, of course. But wouldn't it be nice to eliminate or reduce them by 10 or 20 percent? So the available, the limited resources we do have for response could be used more effectively and have bigger impact if we can reduce the number of these. I think the social behavioral change is a great opportunity right now. There's nothing like a good disease to get people to think about what they do. 
Um, but beyond that, it's really about good education and getting and shifting people away from unhealthy practices. Um, and I think I'll just close with that. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, uh, thanks, Billy. I'm just going to ask you a quick question. Um, I take the, one of your big points, which is that we ought to be changing uh, consumption habits about people who are eating either carriers or those who are likely to be infected by, uh, that is, foodstuff. But, you know, I said in my opening comments, everybody says, we're moving around a lot. People are moving around a lot more than we used to, air uh, transportation, et cetera. So we naturally carry um, infectious diseases with us, but but the animals move around a lot too. The birds move around a lot too. The bats do as well. And is there is there anything we can do to stop those initial carriers of the disease, or is that why we just have to assume we're going to be living with uh, infectious disease outbreaks uh, forever? I think it's a great question. So um, what do we say? In AA, you know, you can change the things we can change, and other yeah. ones can't accept yeah. us. So we were thinking about um, migratory birds and the spread of influenza. There's not much we can do about that. The wildlife trade, though, is purely driven by people. Right. So um, as you see in these markets, basically around, and certainly the case in China, most, much of the wildlife's been hunted out over the years. So they're importing animals, they're bringing animals from farther away. In that market in Indonesia, those bats are coming from one and two and 300 miles away, being brought mm -hmm. by traders. So we're really moving, we're really pushing that system to feed that, whatever that demand is. Um, in China, a lot of that trade is illegal. Um, so they have things in place, but you know, as we know in the US, illegal activities still do happen. Um, so it's really about gearing up with law enforcement. But I think, once again, it's also about ch uh, changing consumer desires and, and demand. And I think as a people, I mean, the, traditionally you went to a live animal market because that was the safest place to get food because there was no refrigeration. Now we have an alternative that actually provides safe food. So I think here, as here. we expand that, we, we can get move along with people's thinking. Okay, that's very helpful. Uh, next is Dr. Daniel Chertow, uh, here from the National Institutes of Health, but uh, a lot of uh, significant accomplishments along the way. Captain in the U.S. Public Health Service, head of the Emerging Pathogens Section, Clinical Care Medical Medicine Department, Clinical Center, and Laboratory Immunoregulation at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at NIH. Uh, thanks for what NIH is doing every day, and particularly now working on a response to this coronavirus. We're glad to have you here. Well, thank you, uh, Senator Lieberman. Uh, it's my honor to be here, and I appreciate the invitation. So um, I'll keep my initial remarks relatively brief. I've prepared a short statement Good. that I'd like to, uh, to read to the group. So again, I'd like to thank uh, the Commission and the Hudson Institute for the opportunity to uh, participate in today's discussion. It's my honor to be here among such an esteemed group of organizers and discussants, uh, including yourself, Senator Lieberman, uh, and my co-panelists, uh, Dr. Gerberding, uh, Dr. Koresh, Mr. Morrison, and Mr. Brown. Uh, we're here today because uh, in early December 2019, Chinese officials uh, reported a cluster of pneumonia in, in Wuhan, China. 
within weeks, uh, a novel virus termed the 2019 novel coronavirus was isolated uh, from a human and its full genome was sequenced and reported in the medical literature in a very short interval. This virus emerged from its uh, natural reservoir in, in nature, uh, likely uh, bats, as uh, Dr. Koresh has indicated, uh, and likely passed into humans via an intermediate animal host, which has uh, yet to be uh, established. Regardless, uh, once the infection in humans uh, was established, the virus has proven to result in efficient human-to-human -human spread uh, within communities, households, and in the healthcare setting. Infections are now widespread in China, and exported case cases regionally and internationally are on the rise. Uh, the most recent epidemi epidemiologic data reported from the World Health Organization on February 9th indicates that there are greater than 37,000 laboratory-confirmed cases reported with more than 8,000 deaths uh, with the predominance in China, but uh, regionally exported and internationally exported cases to 24 countries. Rapid dissemination of information about this virus through public health authorities and in the medical literature have provided important insights into the clinical and epidemiologic features of the virus. Based upon uh, available WHO data among laboratory-confirmed cases, approximately 15% of infected in individuals develop signs and symptoms of lower respiratory tract infection consistent with uh, pneumonia and approximately 2% of the reported confirmed cases uh, are, uh, result in a lethal outcome or, or are fatal. Now, it's important to note that this reported case fatality is likely an overestimate, and that should be a point of discussion today, as uh, more mild or asymptomatic cases are likely uh, going undetected. Among hospitalized individuals uh, with confirmed infection, reported case fatality is higher. It's around 4%. Uh, based upon recent publications. Preliminary estimates indicate that this virus is at least as transmissible as influenza, with every case infecting on average two or more individuals. Given these details, appropriate public health efforts to slow the spread of this virus are underway. These include travel restrictions and screenings, isolation of cases, contact tracing, and quarantine of potentially exposed individuals. Preparedness at the individual level and at the institutional level, both at local uh, healthcare facilities uh, and uh, healthcare systems within local, state, and national levels, is warranted and it is ongoing. Those are my initial remarks, and I will cede the floor. <laughs> Thanks, Doctor. That was great. Uh, we'll be back to you. I always ask you, Dr. Julie, how to pronounce your last name. Oh, you know, it's like the baby food. Gerber, Gerber ding. ding. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> That's exactly the same answer you gave me last time, so, <laughs> which is unusual in Washington. <laughs> uh, Dr. Gerber Ding has, um, has been the uh, director of uh, CDC and uh, Centers for Disease Control, and I stress today, uh, and prevention. Uh, she left that post, and she now has a, a position as executive vice president and chief patient officer, strategic communications, global public policy, and population health at Merck. So she brings with her uh, two really important elements of this, which is the work that CDC 
should be doing, has been doing, and the role of uh, private uh, pharmaceutical companies in both responding to this crisis and helping us prevent the next one. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me and for focusing this kind of expert attention on this issue. It's a, it's a privilege to participate. Um, I thought what I would do in my opening remarks is just remind people of how uh, an outbreak unfolds and how the strategy has to change over time depending on what phase of the outbreak you're in. Good. So if you think about um, what happened first? So there was a, a localized outbreak, and the first thing that has to happen after the emergence of this, what is presumably a zoonotic infection, is the recognition and then the reporting of that outbreak. And while that seems to have happened much earlier in the course of the outbreak than it did when I was experiencing SARS at CDC, um, we can never be fast enough um, to really get that real-time understanding and that real-time diagnosis of what's going on. Once there is an outbreak, the next phase is really containment. And we have seen, I think, the most um, sophisticated and complete containment effort that has ever been invoked. I, I don't know if you go back to the beginnings of quarantine when the ships in Venice were kept in the harbor for 40 days, whether maybe that was an even more extreme case. But I think what's going on in, the, in, in Wuhan is got to be, from a, a population basis, the single most massive containment effort. And then you surround that with the travel restrictions that are being implemented by countries uh, around the world. This is definitely um, the best possible effort to really try to contain something at the source. The next phase is the spillover phase, and we have already seen that. There are more than 300 cases of coronavirus infection that have occurred in other parts of the world. Some of them have led to some secondary cases, but just this week we're beginning to see cases in people who aren't directly linked with, with travel in China. And as Dr. Tedros, uh, the Director General of the WHO said today, those are sparks that could ignite a fire of sustained local transmission. There's not a fire yet, but those sparks are what's really worrisome today. If you do get sustained local transmission, then obviously the strategy changes. Containment is no longer the goal. The goal is to slow down the spread and try to reduce the peak, because the peak really impinges on our ability to provide care and sustain essential medical services, as well as all of the other essential services that societies need to provide for their citizens when they're under stress. So all the continuity of government, the continuity of safety and security, the continuity of food security, et cetera, et cetera. So when you move into this um, phase of trying to slow down, that's where the social distancing becomes important, early school closures, avoidance of mass congregations, et cetera, et cetera. The goal isn't necessarily keep it out because it's probably too late for that, but the goal becomes can we slow the progression, smooth the curve, um, reduce the overall stress on the system, and hopefully save lives in the process of all that. Um, and once we see what we do every year with seasonal influenza where we have widespread sustained transmission, uh, you really just move into a situation where you're trying to man manage individual illness and encourage people to take common sense precautions to protect themselves. So, you know, right now we're at this kind of spillover phase of this epidemic, and we don't know what's going to happen next. Um, we have some 
uh, information, as you pointed out, about the fatality rate being much higher than we would expect with seasonal influenza, but not as high as it is with SARS or MERS. And at the same time, um, when people are infected and how long they remain infected is very worrisome, particularly if there does prove to be more of the asymptomatic transmission, which, by the way, does happen every year with influenza. So we really are desperately seeking the parameters that define the speed of spread and the risk of transmission at various stages of illness. And um, candidly, I'm worried about that. Uh, <clears throat> thanks. I'm, I wonder if I can ask you just a, a, a layman's question, um, which is, um, what are the ways in which this uh, coronavirus spread could end? I mean, presumably, if we if we develop treatment medications, that's one way. That's going to take a while. Um, in the best case, um, d does it play itself out? In other words, what what, what what's the science tell us about uh, how this comes to an end? Let's assume for a moment, unfortunately, but let's assume that we don't uh, develop treatments. Does it just keep spreading? I'm, I think people ask me that question. Uh, or does it stop of its own? So that's, a, that's an important question. We don't know the answer to it. With SARS, containment occurred. After 8,000 right. cases, SARS was completely quenched. But SARS mainly spread from really sick people in hospitals, where you could implement all of the infection control precautions that we know would be successful and really quench the transmission. We've seen the same thing happen with most Ebola outbreaks, where once you know there's a problem, you implement the proper protection so that the sick people aren't transmitting to well people, and you can at least temporarily contain the problem. MERS, on the other hand, the, uh, another coronavirus that is a very high fatality rate, about 34%, MERS is still being transmitted. It's coming from camels to humans. It's percolating along. And occasionally, one of these MERS patients gets admitted to the hospital. People don't recognize they're infected. And they become what we also saw in SARS, a super spreader, where they um, are the source of infection for health workers, for other patients, and for visitors to the hospital. So incomplete containment, even in modern times where we have diagnostic tests, we haven't been able to completely contain MERS. So I suspect um, that we can reduce a significant amount of the hospital transmission of coronavirus when the tests are widespread and we have patients in isolation or in places where there is a supply of masks and protective equipment. But you know the supply chain is very worrisome right now. And whether we can scale that level of protection to the number of communities that might ultimately be infected, that's a, that's a very worrisome aspect of this. Thank you. So it's a foreboding but helpful uh, answer. Uh, next, we've got the Honorable Tim Morrison, now a senior fellow right here at the Hudson Institute. I met him first long ago when he uh, was a uh, very critical and important staff member for colleagues of mine on Capitol Hill, notably my dear friend and colleague, uh, former Senator John Kyle. Uh, more recently, he's been, I want to get the title correct, Deputy Assistant to the President, President Trump for National Security former special assistant to the president and senior director for weapons of mass destruction and biodefense. And Tim, uh, at our commission, we give you uh, a good amount of credit for the uh, um, promulgation by the Trump administration, not only of the promulgation of a national biodefense strategy, but it's a first-rate strategy. So thank you for that. 
uh, thank you, Senator. I, I appreciate. I think it was about a year ago I was here today to talk about that that strategy, and uh, the fact that you invited me back, I think, is the most gratifying <laughs> thing. Um, so, as you mentioned, uh, uh, prior to um, to leaving the administration, um, uh, and when I came here uh, to speak before before you last year, I was the senior director for weapons mass destruction. We also called it uh, counterproliferation of biodefense. And so, one of my one of my jobs um, was to help. Uh, the president to develop the national biodefense strategy, and um, I've, I've been a staffer long enough to know uh, never to try to take any credit. It was uh, it was the bosses um, it was the bosses doing, um, and and really what I think uh, the president was looking to accomplish um, was to have a, a system where he could have accountability. So, uh, building on uh, the good work that had been done by the Obama administration and the Bush 43 administration, I think the president. Um, uh, originally, if I could just step back one further, in the FY17 uh, National Defense Authorization Act, the Congress actually asked the administration, talk to us about how you handle biodefense. Uh, and they principally chartered uh, HHS, um, USDA, and, and DOD. And in answering that, uh, and then, then taking what the answer uh, was going to be to the president, I think the president said, well, this isn't, this isn't enough. Um, and I, I want to know who's actually in charge of biodefense. Um, and this is something the president uh, had, had written about uh, as far back as the year 2000. Again, basic staff work, uh, the, working for the other senator from Arizona, as we, we like to call Senator Kyle. Um, <laughs> uh, we, uh, we, we stepped back and um, we found that really every uh, federal department uh, is involved in biodefense, from, from DHS to, to DOT, obviously USDA, uh, Interior. Uh, biodefense is, touches every part of, uh, of every executive uh, department and agency. And it's also throughout every element and every facet of the intelligence community. And so in terms of trying to wrap our arms around that and trying to answer the mail for the president, who's accountable, who's in charge, um, the biodefense strategy, NSPM 14, was born. Um, uh, which set up a process, again, building on, I think, some very solid work that was done by, um, by the two previous administrations uh, to uh, allow the president to wrap his arms around uh, what the priorities are in each of the departments and agencies that have a role in biodefense. How do you put that together in terms of a cogent plan and a cogent budget uh, that can be then sent over to Capitol Hill, as was done today with, for the FY21 budget, uh, where, where the Hill will then chop it up into 13 different budgets through the appropriations process, but, but tr still try to keep it in, in terms of some sort of place where you draw the line because budgets are limited, uh, even when the budget today was about $4 trillion. Budgets are limited, and there's always priorities that are going to fall above the line and below the line. How do you package that up and, and try to put together um, one overall picture where the president can then look across the interagency and we have a video of an interagency meeting too, but it's definitely not suitable for, for an open <laughs> forum like this. If you, you want to talk about how the sausage is made, uh, fewer, fewer bats in our process. But, um, but uh, that is an annual process, the NSPM 14 process, to, to pull all those budgets together, all those different programs uh, together from all the executive agencies and, and in fact, the intelligence community, uh, and try to put it together with, under one unified set of priorities. Uh, and then the president knows who to, who to look to. And I think you saw that play out when he announced his task force for, uh, for coronavirus was he immediately went to Secretary Azar and he immediately went to the National Security Advisor 
because that's what NSPM 14 told him. That's the process he set in place. And so you know, the administration has had a number of opportunities to, talk, to, to show how this process works because since it came uh, forward, first of all, there was the sausage making of the strategy. The, the administration promulgated the global health security strategy. Uh, the administration promulgated the influenza executive order to streamline vaccine production. And one of the most amazing things to me uh, in, in helping to work through that process was just how much of our vaccine production is still tied to eggs, uh, which when you think about where we are in the 21st century and the, you know, the fact that every one of us has a, has a phone, hopefully nobody has a Huawei phone, but every, every one of us has a phone uh, with more computing power than the Apollo program, and yet we're still making our, our vaccines uh, with eggs. Um, uh, trying to trying to that that was one of the goals of the uh, influenza executive order was how can we how can we change that process to make a vaccine production supply chain that's more nimble and responsive um, to to what we actually see um, and then of course Ebola and the uh, Obama administration before the 2014 West Africa outbreak um, uh, did a lot of significant work uh, a lot of those lessons uh, uh, were wound up uh, we baked them into the NSPM 14 process. Um, but getting uh, our arms around the Ebola in, in the Congo, um, the most challenging, um, feel, free, feel free to disagree with what you saw, but we, it, in the Congo, we encountered the most unstable security situation for a, a, an epidemic outbreak, I think, that we've ever seen. Um, uh, you, you found a, an outbreak in a part of the country that simply did not consider itself uh, bound to that government. In fact, there were concerns about the fidelity of their election in the middle of the outbreak, just to really make sure that the population didn't trust the government. Um, these were the kinds of things we were dealing with. But the NSPM 14 process, the biodefense strategy, uh, I think wound up proving itself out uh, to help the interagency, help the president with the options that he would need to help marshal all the resources of the United States government, the WHO, and allies to help get that outbreak under control. Um, and so that, that was the process. Those were the lessons that we learned. Um, and I think that's a process that's largely working today. There have been no significant calls for the kind of Ebola czar that was needed in 2014. I know people continue to talk about it. But I think, by and large, and maybe it's just a, a function of who I talk to, I think, by and large, people, uh, people believe that the process that was set up is largely working. The gaps that people um, uh, have previously feared uh, when these were more, uh, pardon the term, more novel um, um, uh, episodes for the government to handle, I think aren't there today because of the lessons that have been learned before. Um, and really what we wind up finding is the biggest gap we're, we're dealing with is the information we get out of China and, and can we trust it? Are we getting a, a fulsome picture? Um, but for the purposes of the interagency, I think the process that the, the president set up um, is largely working, um, and, and hopefully that continues to play out as, as the uh, United States government gets its arms around how do we respond uh, to this particular outbreak. Great. Thank you. Eric Brown uh, is uh, also a senior fellow uh, here at the Institute, uh, Hudson's, Hudson's Institute, and uh, is uh, an expert on China and uh, Chinese government and policy. So uh, we're uh, grateful uh, to have you bring that um, important element to this discussion. Yeah. Um, let me caveat everything that I'm going to say by saying I have no public health background. I'm a 
science junkie, so I'm very much here and, and grateful to be able to hear what all of you have to say about this. I mean, most American citizens, I think, have been hungering for some rational scientific explanation about what we're looking at in the coronavirus outbreak. I think the opacity and the lack of fulsome information from China itself has contributed to a lot of conspiracy theories, fringe um, theories, among other things, and general fear. Uh, and I should say that that's general fear not just in the United States, but in China itself and in the countries that surround it. Um, there's a general, uh, I think, a general sense that, that the PRC numbers and what the PRC says, what the Chinese Communist Party says about the outbreak is not credible, that it's in fact politically skewed by what the party itself wants both its subjects and the wider world to hear. And on that account, I want to say that I don't think that the party's response to the crisis is very surprising. I mean, at first, last year, officials in Wuhan, party officials, at the direction of Beijing, had scrambled to cover up the epidemic. And now people from all walks of life are being threatened and punished by the party state for not reporting on the pandemic or complying with other party dictates. Neighbor is being turned against neighbor. You can visit Weibo and uh, social media to see evidence of this. Well, tens of millions of Chinese are under lockdown, and the central government is saying it has everything under control. And yet, there's a persistent question. Is that, in fact, the case? And are these draconian measures, in fact, necessary? I'll take your word for it. but but. From, from, from my perspective, I, I highly doubt that a city like Los Angeles would countenance being locked down the way the citizens of Wuhan have been locked down. All this, in fact, fits a pattern with how the Communist Party has responded to comparable crises in the past. For instance, the HIV-tainted blood supply that blossomed into a full AIDS epidemic in the 1990s, the SARS epidemic of 2003, as well as other con uh, issues and crises surrounded contaminated, surrounding contaminated food supplies. First, the CCP has a habit of denying that this is happening. Then the party spins and lies about the extent of it or gives bad information. Then it responds with draconian, draconian measures and underplays the extent to which the crisis has happened and the damage it has caused. It's, I'll add that it is, in fact, the party's MO, not just when it comes to public health crises, but in all instances where it faces political embarrassment and its competence and the power of its claims to power are called into question. Look, for instance, at Beijing's bid to cover up the mass atrocities in gulags in Xinjiang, which is something that we've studied very closely here at the Institute. I was very glad to see Secretary Pompeo and the administration as well as leaders in Congress call for a robust effort to mobilize money and US health expertise to help China arrest the epidemic there. I uh, would argue that, objectively speaking, the US is the most pro-China country and has done more for China than any other foreign nation over the last 150 years. Um, that's a political statement, but it's borne out by anybody who studies the history. I do worry, however, that even this sign of goodwill is not going to change much about the CCP's behavior. And we know how the CCP has responded to other crises, particularly in the last 10 years, and particularly since the rise of Xi Jinping. And it has led not to greater liberalization um, or greater 
accountability of party officials, but rather to the opposite. Uh, instead, what we see today is the CCP's propaganda apparatus or narrative spinners has kicked into overdrive, and it is relying more and more on nationalism and paranoia to divert people's attentions from the party's own failings at home. It is attributing the regime's problems, indeed, to responding to, in responding to the crisis to foreign machinations. U.S. health officials have not yet been allowed to go, I think en masse, uh, and without getting a proper assessment of what's happening, we can't provide our own expertise. So this is the PRC politicizing the problem, and yet the PRC's ambassador to the U.S. just the other day said that the U.S. is politicizing the virus outbreak I find this to be particularly rich since it is, in fact, the CCP state that has politicized the very international health bodies that are supposed to fight these pandemics and keep them contained. Taiwan, for instance, is a frontline nation in responding to the crisis, but the PRC's successful efforts to exclude Taiwan from uh, participation in the World Health Organization is putting the parties political considerations above the health of ordinary Taiwanese, and in fact, I think every country in the world that Taiwan is connected to. Taiwan is a vital frontline state in stopping the spread of this epidemic, and it has expertise indeed that it could offer to the Chinese mainland in the interim. I want to say that I think um, the social and cultural changes to wet markets, um, China has shown a tremendous capacity for innovation in social and cultural affairs. These wet markets have been around for hundreds of years, thousands of years even, and I, I don't see why the Chinese people with a proper education campaign can't modernize their practices there and hopefully improve food security and the food supply to create alternatives. The Chinese Communist Party, however, has been around um, since in power, at least, since uh, it fell, it, China fell to it in 1949. It's going to be a lot harder to change that. Um, the kind of bad information that we get out of China, not just about public health crises, but about economic and um, military issues, among other things, this is baked into the Communist Party system. Why? Because the Communist Party is unlike our system, which is Yes, we believe that people can govern themselves best if they are free, but we also fundamentally believe in the fallibility of human nature. And for that reason, we build up a system of checks and balances, and we encourage cross-checking and debate and lots of disagreement in the public realm. And this is the fastest way, I think, to getting a proper assessment of what's actually happening, and this has add-on benefits for governance writ large. The PRC party state is founded on the theory of dialectical materialism, not skeptical materialism. It believes, the party believes, that it and it alone has the right to rule China. And therefore, it has a political interest in preserving the myth that its decisions are infallible, that in all instances, including political public health crises like the current one, its decisions are correct. In all instances, they must be correct. What this means in practice is that the party needs to have total control over the information that comes into the country and that goes out of the country. And it's precisely this system that is producing the skewed information that we're getting out of China. And it has implications for China's governance. And with an issue like this, an epidemic 
that has become a pandemic, it has implications for every other country in the world. And I think that the responses that you're seeing from the US, from most of China's neighbors, is a sign that in matters in life and death, they're not willing to rely on the party's judgment uh, much longer. Um, and this is going to have implications for, for, I think, years to come, even if the coronavirus that we're tackling right now goes away this season. Uh, if the sun comes out and burns it up, that would be wonderful. But people don't trust what the CCP is telling them. Um, and I'll leave it at that for now. Thank you. OK, thanks, uh, uh, Mr. Brown. That was uh, a straight talk, as my buddy, the other senator from Arizona, used to say. Um, yes, him. And, and it, uh, I'd say two things. One is that, um, and it may be happening in this case, that even uh, autocratic centralized governments um, are sensitive to public opinion if public opinion is so aroused that it may, uh, in some sense, uh, e either one, disrupt the stability of the country, or two, threaten the continuance of the autocratic government. And uh, in recent times, uh, we have seen the Chinese people, to be specific, uh, be uh, up, very upset, mobilized on the question of environmental uh, pollution, particularly air pollution, but others as well. And, and the government responded autocratically, <laughs> uh, much quicker than the American Congress and president would respond because of the, the nature of our process, and did some very affirmative things to, to reduce sources of air pollution. It's obviously not perfect. So it may be, to have an optimistic view of this, that um, the government will feel a, a necessity for its own credibility uh, and to avoid uh, uh, d domestic instability and uh, worse, uh, to uh, take action some of the ways uh, they can. And the other thing, and from our point of view, and I want to just, before I have some questions from the audience, ask others to comment from their perspective. So we, we uh, I think we in the United States have to ask ourselves, um, at this moment in the history of our relations with China, which have been contentious in recent years, although a little bit calmer right now, uh, and, and because of all of our difference in values approach to government that you've talked about in some ways, Nonetheless, um, there are what I'd call both moral and um, practical reasons why we have to try very hard to engage with the Chinese government and try to uh, be constructive in response to this kind of public health uh, crisis. The moral one is, of course, these are people in China. Uh, they're our fellow human beings. They're, they're uh, being infected and dying at an alarming rate. So to the extent that we can helps the Chinese government and people stop this, that's, I think, a moral imperative. And it's one that's traditionally been accepted by America and a lot of other uh, natural disaster cases. And the second is what you, what you talk about, which is that, uh, you know, it is, as Mr. Disney uh, told us a long time ago, a very small world. And our interconnections, uh, the American people with China, whatever our, the nature of our political relations economically and tourism, just remarkably intense. We can't, it's Im impossible to separate. I saw a number recently, not just to America, but 150 million 
visits by Chinese people outside of China every year. It's quite something. And um, so I guess the question is, uh, in, in a situation that can be difficult, there's national pride, there's political uh, authority on the line, whether any of you want to comment on the extent to which you, in your areas of expertise, something uh, constructive is happening uh, with ch China, either Chinese government or, or independent groups there, or, or what can happen, what should happen. Dr. Uh, Gerberding, I wonder about you, both in terms of your pre previous life at CDC, but also uh, the pharmaceutical sector. Yeah, so I, I have a memory in my mind of my time at CDC that has really colored how I'm thinking about sort of this tension between autocratic government and humanitarianism and the moral and social responsibility that we have to do the right thing when people are suffering the way these people are suffering. My predecessor at CDC, Dr. Jeff Copeland, established a relationship with the China CDC when it was very small and nascent. And I tried really hard to build on that. So we established a memorandum of understanding between the US CDC and the China CDC. And almost every year, the China CDC would bring its most senior leaders to Atlanta, and we would have a scientist to scientist colloquium. And then in the opposite year, I brought all of my leaders to China and sat down at their CDC. And after um, the concern about avian influenza emerged, I went to China with the leaders. We sat in the new China CDC Emergency Operations Center. We linked to the operations centers in every province. We met with the scientists. Our flu expert had a very interesting scientific exchange about flu surveillance and so on and so forth. And then we went in front of the building and had our picture made, all of the CDC leaders, and they flew the American flag and the Chinese flag. And in that moment, I felt like the front line of global health security was sitting in that tableau. Because if we can't figure out how to cooperate in the context of a global health emergency, everyone will suffer. And I, I just keep coming back to that memory as I think about you know what should I, as a leader at Merck do, what should the industry do, what should we as Americans be doing. Um, you know, right now, we have several thousand employees in China. We're very concerned about our Chinese colleagues in, in, in our company. But we're, I, as the chief patient officer, I'm especially concerned about the patients that we have in clinical trials for things like cancer, because these patients need their medicines. And if we can't figure out a way how to sustain their therapy, they will die, not from a coronavirus, but they will die because they can't get the medicines they need in a health system that's overwhelmed with worried well as well as the, the affected people. So I think we have to really kind of back up from our political lens alone and broaden the aperture to consider uh, an even more um, important humanitarian terms of engagement. Okay, that's a great uh, memory. Um, so if I heard you right, your, Merck is doing clinical trials on cancer medications in China. These are not clinical trials for coronavirus. No, understood. cancer patients. Yeah, that so are that's receiving. fascinating, and again, shows us what a small world it is, because I bet most people in the US would be surprised yeah. to hear yeah. that you're doing clinical trials in China, but, but why not if, you, if it works? People are suffering. People are suffering, and, and it'll be, uh, the, the uh, impact will be global if, if uh, whatever you're uh, trying uh, will work. 
Dr. Trudeau from NIH, uh, how about connections and partnerships with your Chinese colleagues? Yeah, I, I guess I would I would uh, respond to the general uh, part of the conversation by echoing what Dr. Gerberding said, which is sort of simply put that you know we need each other. I mean, it is a very interconnected world, and microbes don't respect international boundaries. Um, we know that, and the example is is you know sh you know playing out again. Um, the question of you know what. What, what has been done well so far and what might have been done perhaps a little bit better. Um, you know, uh, as we said uh, previously, in a remarkably short interval, uh, uh, the recognition of a new uh, severe pneumonia clinical syndrome, the identification of uh, an ex you know, electron micrograph of the organism in a very short period of time, the full genome sequencing, the relationship of that sequencing to known bat coronaviruses that have uh, been pulled out of bats uh, to give us some insight into where this pathogen may have may be hiding in nature. A relatively rapid reporting of uh, clinical and epidemiologic information that has been published in major medical journals, including the New England Journal of Medicine and Lancet, uh, with 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 active ongoing websites that are being continually updated where uh, relevant epidemiologic and clinical information about this disease that are really important uh, for decision makers are being shared. All of those things are really, really excellent. Um, I think what you know has been stated and is quite obvious is that you know the United States between the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, and and you know certainly you know folks at the National Institutes of Health, we have enormous capacity and capability, global expertise with uh, disease prevention and control, uh, and we certainly would like our experts to be present and to be part of uh, what's going on on the ground to answer some really important fundamental questions. One of which is, you know, what is the denominator? You know how. how I mentioned this 2% case fatality rate. Well, is it 2%? That may seem low compared to SARS 10% or MERS, you know, 34%. But compared to seasonal influenza, one in a thousand to one in 10,000. Compared to the 1918 pandemic, you know, 1% to 2% uh, case fatality rate. It's pretty high. But is that the true case fatality rate? What's what's the denominator? Um, that's a really important question for for our our folks. To, and then the other question that Dr. Gerberding mentioned as it relates to what is the likelihood that our control and prevention and control practices are going to work is there asymptomatic shedding you know we mentioned influenza influenza has about a two to three day incubation period where you're exposed before you begin uh, uh, be, before you begin uh, to have a manifestation of illness but and within that two to three day period there's about a 24 hour period where you have no symptoms and we know that you're shedding the virus well, what does that look like for this virus? It has really, really important implications for policy planning to say what what of the different interventions that we're going to make are going to control uh, this outbreak. And as you, you you asked the question about you know NIH, obviously uh, our our mission relates to biomedical research, which has to do with you know vaccines uh, and uh, and potential therapeutics. Um, you know shared efforts of looking at prompt you know potential promising antivirals 
you know, in coordination. That has to do with the design of the clinical trials to look at safety and efficacy. Uh, rather than having uh, duplicative efforts between the United States and China, those efforts should be, I would suggest, coordinated. Excellent. Uh, we have questions from, you want to add just one thing? I like you, you know. <laughs> oh, yes. Is that a yes or more no? than yes. No, okay. please. Um, I just want to just follow that line of thinking because there's the political side, so I'm on board with you there. Um, but we tend to think of this as so much as government, government, um, when in fact I mean, the beautiful thing in the U.S. is most of us actually aren't in government. Um, and the same is true in China. And there is a lot of interaction. And you know, there's some interesting programs, like um, USAID has been supporting US scientists and healthcare workers to build collaborations. DITRA has a biological engagement program about collaboration. NIAID has a great one, NIH. We've been working in China with NIH uh, support and AID. And those relationships are pretty amazing those, over the those decades. Those are with non-governmental entities, yes. like educational. Yeah, you know, in China, health. it's always hard to decide what's really not government. Yeah, their system. But but at least it's but, not officially government. Exactly. Um, so we don't have to discuss with the State Department. It's okay to make a phone call. Right. So we pick up the phone and we talk to them. So in this case, we've been learning a lot from these viruses and getting emails from colleagues there. Um, so there's some in, built into our system. We have some, I don't know you call them workarounds, but they're like alternative pathways, and the private sector's doing that. So you know, in some ways, that's encouraging. And we see in the Chinese society, amongst the people, they're also interested in that. Um, I'm, the alternative to not being engaged is just to paddle around at night in your canoe and wait for something to jump over the transom and try and react. Um, so we well, need some in yeah. ways. While to people be on the other side of the transom are dying. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and had that this disease broken out in Indonesia in that market, um, I don't know if they would have responded half with the same capabilities in, as China. So there's something you know. There's a complex story that's going on. But I mean, I'm certainly on board with you about things that could improve there. Okay, uh, there, uh, that leads me to uh, ask you, we have uh, some questions asked by the audience, and two of them go together. One is about Indonesia. The first is, notwithstanding reports of wildlife trade and consumption in Southeast Asia and China, the, the NCOV originates from Wuhan. What's the defining difference that results in this outbreak in China and not one of the other Southeast Asian countries. And if I may, I'll add this second question, which is re related. Regarding the video clips showing wildlife sales in the Indonesian markets, Indonesia has actually not reported a single novel coronavirus case. Can you share an assessment on whether it is a case of underreporting or insufficient capabilities, or perhaps a natural resistance against such a disease spreading in Indonesia? I, well, you can help me on this. My, I would say all of the above, but I would, um, with Indonesia, I don't, if it's under, being underreported, it's because it's not being detected or diagnosed. And I think they don't have the same rapid capabilities that we see in other countries, including China. 
these spillover events, like I was saying, it's like one percent of that rural population of China. One percent would be five, ten million people have antibodies to these coronaviruses, it, and it hasn't turned in. None of those have turned into a pandemic or right. you know, thing. So I think this is happening all the time. It's probably happening in Indonesia and Thailand and Malaysia and Myanmar um, and throughout the region and Vietnam. Um, most of them are dead ends. They don't go very far. It's just everyone wants one, you know, one became HIV AIDS. It hasn't gone away yet. One became SARS. Most of them, they're happening all the time. Most of them are dead ends, and, and yeah. luckily for us, they don't go anywhere. So that's a good point. So we're all, including me, learning about something called the coronavirus, but those of you who are active in the field, I have learned, I know that there are a lot of coronaviruses and they've been around for a while. This one just happens to be taking off in a way that's uh, quite harmful. Yeah, we have two that cause the common cold. It looks like entered the human population. Well, two that look like it came from bats about 100 or 200 years ago, probably in the 1700s, entered humans. So dare I ask, is it possible that we will contain the current pandemic in some ways bring it to an end, and yet the, the virus that has led to it will stay around in the human family for quite a while. I have to admit, when mm. SARS emerged and the wet markets weren't any better than, than they are now, so it seemed mm-hmm. almost impossible to me it wouldn't be back. Yeah. And, you know, we haven't seen natural right. uh, recurrence of SARS except for those patient who had that related SARS coronavirus, but we really didn't see SARS again. Very mysterious, tells you we have a lot to learn. Um, There's also a a conversation about seasonality. The coronaviruses that we all get, about a third of us every year, um, with the common cold, are winter viruses. They go away in the summertime in the northern climates. In the more uh, tropical areas, there's less seasonality. So we have to remember not to be falsely reassured by this just because um, many people living in colder temperatures aren't plagued with respiratory viruses when it's warm outside. Lots of people live south of the equator, and lots of people would continue to be at risk for a non-seasonal infection. So just much more to learn. And I really would hesitate to look in the crystal ball on this one. Uh, Here's a question uh, that probably a lot of people across the country are asking themselves that has been asked from the audience. Um, Exactly how does one determine whether a patient has the Wuhan uh, coronavirus? Are false positives common? Dr. Chirta, do you want to try that? Sure. So, uh, you know, I think up front there is is a uh, surveillance uh, or a case-finding definition which simply put is uh, you know sort of two features combined. So it's an individual uh, that has uh, evidence of a respiratory illness, fever, cough, uh, breathing quickly, shortness of breath, plus an epidemiologic risk factor. And right now that epidemiologic risk factor is either travel to a region where there are cases within a 14-day interval, which is on the long end of uh, the the, uh, the incubation period uh, for the virus. So a clinical syndrome plus an epidemiologic risk factor, which includes either travel to a re- an affected region within 14 days or uh, contact 
with uh, a suspected or confirmed case. So a clinical feature and an epidemiologic risk factor. Those individuals uh, then are flagged uh, and, uh, and they're tested. And the testing is done uh, predominantly on uh, uh, respiratory secretions, both from the upper and the lower respiratory tract. And there's a test that is a very uh, sensitive uh, and specific test. It's a molecular test uh, that was uh, established at the CDC and now is being pushed out to state health departments uh, that, ha as I say, is, is quite sensitive. If it's positive, uh, that means that you've got it. If it's negative, you have to be careful in the interpretation of the test. Because even though the test is quite accurate, depending upon where you are in the course of illness, you may or may not be shedding from the upper versus lower respiratory tract, which is why there is a recommendation for testing of multiple specimens and perhaps testing repeatedly over the course of the, the clinical illness. You want to add anything, Dr. Gerberding? No, I think I'd like to just go back to the Indonesia question, though, no. because in medical school I learned that there was no fever if there's no thermometer. <laughs> And I think that we have to be, you know, mindful of the fact that the test is not universally yeah. available, so we could be missing cases. Yeah. Let me ask you a question then at the other end of your experience, which is um, what, what can the government best do to be supportive of the um, pharmaceutical industry in uh, bringing about, if it's possible, a broad, a broad spectrum antiviral medication so, so we're ready uh, the next time this happens. It's hard for the pharmaceutical industry, I know, because you're not sure when it's going to happen. So it's not a certain market, a, a clear market like a continuing illness that, um, that affects a, a lot of people. So a little context here, because the you know the government has been working on this since at least um, the Bush administration and probably before that, um, and that's where the investment in BARDA, um, the biomedical you know the advanced research development um, capability that allows our government to invest in biotech and pharmaceutical companies and device companies to work on countermeasures in advance of the appearance of a particular problem, building vaccines, antivirals, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's the strategic national stockpile, which is our hidden in plain sight warehouse of all kinds of durable medical goods and medicines. So the problem is, is that the list of what might happen, of the things we even know about, is very, very long. Mm -hmm. um, and then there are the things that haven't appeared yet that, you know, how can we make a countermeasure for something we haven't recognized? So increasingly, investments are being made in platforms. I'm sure that. There is a lot of energy right now around creating a coronavirus platform that would allow um, the rapid introduction of the specific um, parts of the, a new coronavirus that would be most likely to be immunogenic to kind of speed up that process. So that's an, one really important thing that the government is already doing, and we can sustain the funding of that and even do more, I think. Um, the second thing is the government could support CEPI, and I hope people here have heard of CEPI. It's the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation. It's a private-public partnership that includes governments, um, the Gates Foundation, the Welcome Trust, uh, lots of 
partners that have pooled their money and are able to very rapidly uh, respond in a crisis already. They've put three grants out for uh, coronavirus countermeasures. But in addition, their goal is for the things that we know could cause serious outbreaks or pandemics to work on the vaccines and the countermeasures up through phase 2B, even before they've emerged. So it's, again, it's an accelerant trying to engage uh, small companies and large companies in putting more effort into these emerging threats. And that would include, uh, we hope in the future, antibiotic resistance, which of course will be a major bottleneck if we actually do end up with a very large outbreak and have sick people in hospital with complicating bacterial infections. So I think the government needs to step away from our current mindset about the nature of the threat and really think about it in the same frame that we think about other issues of national defense. We are not making an investment commensurate with the degree of threat, and not just threat to human lives, but threat to national uh, security and threat to lives and uh, limb. So our mindset is, how can we do something? But it isn't really, how do we take this off the table? And you know, we always use the DOD analogies, but what we're investing to protect our nation against these threats is really very small compared to what we spend on other elements of national security. That is a, a really important point. And uh, unfortunately, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we're seeing some of the costs. I mean, the markets have been gyrating. Businesses are dropping. Uh, you can see just every day there's another report of uh, the impact on the Chinese economy of this coronavirus outbreak, and and therefore the impact of the troubles in the Chinese economy on the economy of the world, including our own, because we're so uh, interconnected, let alone the fact that a lot of American-based businesses are, are not able to do business or decide not to do business in China now. So, I mean, I, I don't know if anybody's even tried to calculate, but. My guess is that the loss in uh, dollars from the coronavirus globally is going to come in in the hundreds of billions. And uh, therefore, it's worth investing some now to try to avoid it. Tim, um, I'm going to give you an opportunity now that you're outside of government <laughs> to say what you uh, think, based on your experience here, are the one or two most important things the, uh, the federal government could do uh, both an immediate response to this um, pandemic, uh, but also to get ready for the next one, which will surely come. So I'll just go back to uh, the biodefense strategy, um, because I, I think that is a, a process that is still new, that the administration uh, built upon what other administrations had tried to do and improved it. It's the old Newton line that we stand on the shoulders of giants and we can see farther. I think they built on the progress that earlier administrations has made and so continuing to implement it. The, if there's one thing that I came away from the uh, National Security Council with, it was uh, a line from uh, John Bolton, uh, that the process is your protection. So stick with the process mm -hmm. and um, uh, that's what gets things done. It's that long, slow grind that is um, that is the, the work of government. Um, you know, the, uh, I've had a, a number of folks uh, call me up and say, why is the president being so easy on the Chinese? Why does he keep saying all these nice things about Xi Jinping? And you know, to me, you know, 
sort of the Donald Trump you see on TV is the Donald Trump you know, behind the scenes as well. He's just one guy. Um, and um, I think the, the president is engaged in a, a sort of a good cop, bad cop here. I think he is trying to encourage the Chinese to resist some of the worst tendencies of insularity and, and opacity of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and he's leaving it to the CDCs and the NIHs and, and other organizations to be the, the bad cop. I think he's doing his best to try to um, encourage Xi uh, to be as, as open as possible. Now, from time to time, and I didn't see the full interview, I only saw the press clip. Um, from time to time, some of the other government officials, Secretary Ross, say things that can be hopefully taken out of context. Um, but I think that's what the president is, is trying to do, is try to encourage the, um, the Chinese to be as, as open as possible, because that's what's going to um, allow the professionals to, uh, to get in there and get, get, this, thing, get this thing solved, if, if there is a, a solve, if there is a cure. So that, that's an important point. I say respectfully that, as I've observed President Trump, he's capable of being both the good cop and the bad cop. Uh, Sometimes at the same time. At the same time or in the same day. But uh, so we all understand the, the tensions in the uh, bilateral relationship with China, but also I think, I hope people appreciate how important it is to try to, to use a, a familiar word, but I can't think of a better one, manage the relationship in a way that it doesn't break into open conflict because we are so tied together and it is, after all, a small uh, world that we inhabit. So I, for one, was... Um, encouraged when I heard that uh, President Trump and President Xi had an hour-long conversation, uh, much of which was about the, the uh, coronavirus and how to uh, better deal with it. I, I, don't, I think I, I have enough of a sense of President Trump to know that that doesn't end his uh, concerns about every other aspect of a Chinese policy trade or otherwise that bothers him. But um, I mean, I think this is a moment just think of ourselves uh, uh, in terms of our, our, our neighbors and friends when they have a problem. Well, let's think of ourselves when we have a problem <laughs> or, or somebody in our family is sick and one of our friends or neighbors, sometimes it's surprising who will do it, offers to be of help to us. We never forget that. And uh, that may just be the case in relations between great nations like China and the US. I, I, I'm not as naive as that sounds. <laughs> but I am as hopeful as that sounds. So uh, we've come to 3.31. We're a minute over when we said we'd conclude this. Uh, it's, uh, I think it's been extremely valuable to me on behalf of the commission. I thank uh, all those who participated in the discussion. Thank you who uh, came out. And uh, we're going we're gonna to think a lot about what you all said and see how we can take this forward in a way uh, that's constructive. Thank you very much. Thank you all. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time.